I'm Tavi Nasir, and this is Leadership is Cafe, a podcast that provides insights and tools to help leaders take on the challenges and opportunities found in leading today's workplaces. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tavinasir Leadership, our leadership firm that offers keynotes and corporate trainings in both in-person and virtual settings that will help you to improve the way you lead and guide your organization's growth and future successes. Now, if you've been enjoying my podcast and the insights and tools I've been sharing on how you can improve your leadership craft, and you're interested in having me expand on them with your team and organization, I'd like to invite you to check out my speaking page on our website at tavernasir.com to learn about some of the topics I can discuss at your upcoming event. And now, I'd like to introduce my guest for this episode, Adam Bryant. I'm sure many of you know Adam from his work writing the popular New York Times column, Corner Office, where he'd interview executives about their leadership experiences and what informed their leadership journey. I had the chance to speak with Adam on my podcast two years ago when we spoke about his book, The CEO Test, and I've invited him back to talk with me about his latest book, The Leap to Leader, How Ambitious Managers Make the Jump to Leadership. Hi, Adam. Welcome back to the Leadership Biz Cafe. It's nice to have the opportunity to speak with you again. Always enjoy our conversations, Tanvir. Thank you. So, Adam, last time we spoke, we were talking about your book, The CEO Test. And while I was reading this book, The Leap to Leader, I almost felt as though we were having our conversation in reverse, where we started talking about what you need to be able to accomplish in a leadership role. And now we're going to discuss how we make that journey towards becoming a leader. To that end, there's a great question you asked at the beginning of your book that honestly, I think we're not asking and really should be asking both ourselves and to those who we look at within our team and organization and think, hey, they'd be a great leader someday. And that question is, why do you want to be a leader? Now, obviously, part of the problem here is that many organizations are still treating leadership roles as a reward, as a way to keep star employees happy, because when we think of leadership, we think of the prestige, the power, and of course, the pay bump. But I think this question forces us to get more honest about what leadership really involves and who we should be putting in these roles. So could you share why we need to be asking this question more? And from your conversations with other leaders, why aren't we facing this question head on more? Yeah. Yeah. And and I I start with um, just the context that I think managing people and leading people has gotten a lot harder in the last few years. I mean, pick a number, it's debatable, five times harder, 10 times harder. Um, And the fact is a lot of people say to themselves, you know, I really want that job. And then once they actually get the job, they discover how hard it is, right? There is that line that everybody wants the CEO's job until they actually get the CEO's job. Um, And so you start with that. And then I think what happens is there is this kind of, it's almost like the force of a river that just kind of carries people along both individually and um, from the employer side about sort of pushing, pulling people along into these bigger leadership roles. And there's just this, from the employer side, there's just kind of this assumption when they're looking at their succession planning, they're looking at high performers, they just assume everybody wants to move into these bigger roles. Uh, and then individually, I think, you know, a lot of us, we look at those bigger roles and say, wow, bigger title, more financial rewards. Um, more impact. Uh, Yeah, I want those jobs. And then you get into them and you discover, boy, I'm dealing with people problems all day long and the stuff that I really love to do and I'm really good at, I'm not doing that anymore. 
And so given all that, I, I just think everybody, you know, on the employer side, individually, we just need to hit the pause button and address this question of like, do you really want to lead? And there's no judgments if the answer is no, right? right. It's fine if you if you want to be an individual contributor, because what you don't want is sort of get into these jobs and then really not, not feel like they're a good fit because you're just not going to be as effective. And so I always tell people, you've got to take the time to do the introspection, to do the reflection and come up with a clear answer for yourself about why you want to do this. And I do think that if the answer is more power or more financial rewards, you know, there might be a little bit of a short-term, you know, psychological bump from those things, but that wears off pretty quickly. Power doesn't really play in this environment anymore. These jobs are so hard, the financial rewards often don't feel like they're worth it, given all the trade-offs. And so you have to be clear on your why. And ideally, it's about you want to have an impact. You want to lift people individually, coach them, develop them. Um, and you want to contribute and lift the organization. Because if that's your why, then it's going to get you through the tough spots. And there's going to be those tough patches. So using this question as the anchor point to our discussion, Adam, I'd like to talk with you about some of the points you share in this book about what we need to be ready to do and demonstrate that we have the capacity to deliver as a leader in organization. And this leads me to an idea you shared in your book, which interestingly reflects a similar idea shared by a previous guest on my podcast about how to make remote work effective. And it's this idea of creating a user manual for people to better understand you, specifically how you work, what you tend to focus on, your preferred ways to communicate, and so forth. And in your book, what you talk about is creating a leadership user manual so that your team members and your colleagues better understand what you're like as a leader or what you're trying to accomplish as a leader. Now, before anyone listening to us jumps to any conclusions about what we're talking about here, could you elaborate on what this is, how this works, and why it's beneficial for everyone and not just for the leader? And this starts with um, with the fact that this idea did grow out, grow organically out of all my by now more than thousand interviews that I've done with leaders. Um, and the thing I, I love about the leadership user manual is that it's super easy to explain. And and the idea to me is, let's say you and I became colleagues, right? You and I've had a couple of good conversations, um, but let's say now you and I were working with each other. If we assume that, then what else can we assume? We know for certain that it's probably going to take you and me three to six months to figure each other out, right? Um, just in terms of our work preferences, our styles. Do you like email? Do you like brainstorming over phone or Zoom? Um, are you an introvert, extrovert, You know, morning person, night? Like all these different things that are just part of our wiring. It's going to take us about three to six months to figure each other out. So the whole point of the leadership user manual is what if on the first day of you and me working together, we just had the conversation. I said, Tanvir, really looking forward to working with you. What should I know about you? Just your sort of preferences about how you like to work. And then ideally you share that. And then you ask me, what about you, Adam? Because this is a two-way street. And if we get all that stuff out on the table on the first day, 
then we can kind of honor that in each other, right? We can flex, we can accommodate each other as long as they're not unreasonable. Um, and then the beauty of it is then we can focus more on the work that we have to do uh, together and go after our shared goals faster rather than trying to figure each other out. So the whole idea is like, look, we're all human beings. We all have our quirks. We need to acknowledge that. We need to own it. But why don't we just get those out on the table um, and and then again, to me, like the the key verb and all this, just honor those in each other in the same way. Like if you told me, like I'm an introvert, if you told me you were an introvert too, it's like I totally get that. I could work with that. I know what that feels like. Um, so so that's the whole point of it, and shortening that learning curve, and and that way it clears up any misunderstandings around intent, which I think are exacerbated in this sort of remote hybrid environment because. You know, people say things on a tiny little screen. You may not really pick up the body language. It's so easy to misread, uh, misinterpret people's intent. And the leadership user manual is sort of like a big billboard on the highway. It's like, this is who I am. This is how I manage. This is how I lead. Don't misinterpret, you know, anything I do because I'm telling you up front, for example, you know, if I'm going to ask you a lot of questions, it's just because I'm interested and I want to learn. It's not because I'm interrogating you. When you think about it in a tactile, pragmatic way, it seems a bit odd to have to sit there and say, I'm going to create a user manual of what it's like to work with me, collaborate with me, or have me as your leader. But I really like this idea that if we realize that the goal here is not for people to cater or accept our petty whims. But instead, what we're after here is to create clarity and context that people are understand that some of your examples, if I don't immediately reply to your email or text message, it's, it's not because I don't think what they want to talk to me about is important. Rather, it could be maybe because I batch my replies for the end of the day or something. Maybe I'm focusing on other things in the middle of the day. And I especially also like this idea that we're also using this as an opportunity to provide non-work related information about ourselves. So that, that can help us create these connections and start building relationships with those we lead because we can then discover something we share in common. And or if even if it's not, it could be something that, oh, I've always wanted to know more about that. So this allows us to get curious about one another and want to learn more about this person through this topic or this subject that will allow us to have this better understanding and connection with our colleagues and teammates. And I know right now, and I know before we got on air, this was one of the things we were talking about in terms of succession planning and the challenges it's manifesting because of the way we're seeing this transformation in the way we work. But this is also one of the things that people are saying as being a big concern is how do we create these connections if we're not in the same place at the same time, five days a week? How do we nurture those relationships? And I think this idea of the leadership user manual, it really saves us a lot of time because we're starting the ground running. We're starting up creating that clarity that people better understand us. We can understand one another and we don't start to interpret based on our biases or our past experiences what someone is trying to say or communicate through their action or inaction. Yeah. And just to build on that, I mean, it's it's important to be clear about what the leadership user manual is not for, right? And it's not sort of a, a way to care codify somebody's sort of arrogance right it's, yeah the spirit the spirit is definitely not you know when i sit in my throne and before i eat any grapes my subjects must peel them right or and it's not some ridiculous thing like if you're going to send me an email it's got to be in this particular font and point size right that's not 
what it's about. And it's also not about codifying bad, bad behavior or, or, you know, you can't say like, I'm really part of my user manual is I'm really bad on important deadlines. Like that's not okay. Right. Or, you know, I often spill coffee on my laptop and have to get a new one. Like that's not okay. So let's set aside those things that it's obviously not. But I keep coming back to this idea of like, you need to connect with your colleagues at a human level first before you're going to build those really great collaborative working relationships. Because I do feel like in the context of business, the world of work, there is this sort of weird assumption. You could take a bunch of strangers, put them together and say, boom, you're a high performing team, go. It's just not going to happen. And there's lots of tools out there to help sort of speed that up. There's Myers-Briggs and Colors and all these other things. But I find, you know, just being open and honest with about very real things about your work styles and your preferences and your quirks and how you roll, that's a lot more memorable than somebody telling you they're you're telling you that they are an INTJ and you're supposed to remember everybody's initials on your team and accommodate them. And, and I think there's also, you can extend this. I mean, you think of your extended family, right? We've all got quirky people in our extended family and we're quirky too. And in our extended family, we just sort of, we kind of work around each other and accommodate each other's quirks and all that. And, and I think we need to do that in the context of work. And again, the user manual is just a, it's a very uh, simple way to have a very human conversation that's um, that's more about you rather than sort of what your expectations are from other people. So another big learning curve people have to address is becoming a better communicator, which honestly, given the large number of communication channels we've had over the past decade where we've had to learn to master how to communicate in these different ways, and the fact that we're not doing a better job is quite telling, especially when you consider how often there's all these surveys where leaders are asked to rate themselves on their strengths or how well they do a certain thing. And more often than not, the majority will all say, well, I'm a very effective communicator. But in that context of communication, one area that most leaders don't do a great job of is offering both recognition and feedback to those under their care. So for those who are thinking of making that leap to leader, what are some things they need to work on and what are the mindset shifts they should be ready to make to become a more effective communicator, particularly around feedback and recognition? Sure. And let's take uh, each of those separately. I mean, feedback to me is not like the recognition is more, it's always a positive message, right? But feedback is more that kind of constructive feedback. Look, you, maybe you could have done something better and let's start there. Um, and I think we just need to be honest. Most people are often reluctant to do that because they don't necessarily know how the person's going to react, right? And so I think, you know, most of the surveys show that people are starved for feedback. They're they're starved for recognition and managers think it's like, well, you know, I pay them to do this job and they, they don't want to give them the feedback because they don't necessarily know how they're going to react. Um, and so some of the, the best tips that I've heard from CEOs, one of them is just being, when you start working with somebody being very clear up front, say, hey, like I'm going to give you a lot of feedback. I feel like it's my job to give you feedback. And if you do something well, I'm going to tell you. And if you could have done something better, I'm going to tell you. But I, I think a big part of what 
people need to do is is set this tone so that people are somewhat desensitized <laughs> to feedback because there's always this quirk in business. I mean, we go through the early years of our lives getting feedback all the time, right? You, you, you know, in school, you get feedback from your teachers, whether you're playing football or dance or whatever, you're getting feedback from your coaches or instructors. You, you pay professors and colleges to give you feedback, but people get into the context of work and it's like, wait a minute, what? You're giving me feedback? And and there's all this sort of, you know, uh, there's all this stuff that gets heaped onto it that makes it a much bigger and more fraught conversation. So I think the first step is just let people know that you're going to give them feedback and just give people a do it in the moment because when it gets bottled up and delayed that's when it becomes something more i think another key tip about giving feedback is signaling to people that you are on their side right and that your goal is to help them get better um and so if you frame everything in terms of like okay this is okay at, at this level but if you want to get to the next level you need to know that you need to get better on this and here is how and here is why and that way they feel like okay they're trying to help you. The, it is much more of a coaching relationship because you have to disarm people to get them to be open to the feedback. Because if a lot of the times when people are getting feedback, their brain kind of shuts down. They're not really hearing it, but they're going to be much more open to it if they, again, feel like they're helping you. And in terms of recognition, I, I think another important insight is a lot of managers and leaders probably have this feeling like, I give my people a ton of, you know, like, recognition. I'm always saying at a boy, at a girl and 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 great job. But there is a perception gap, right? This there is this perception gap between how much feedback you recognition you think you're giving and how much people are perceiving that they are getting. So the first message is do more. And in terms of in terms of effective recognition, I think you do need to sort of double click on what that looks like because recognition is not just like, hey, great job, right? People can send those emails all day long, but I think recognition is much more powerful when it's specific. So some examples of that is give people feedback on the how of what they did, like really call out the way you did this was so effective um, or tell them, look, you play such a crucial role on the team and what that is, and we really appreciate you or calling out the impact of their work. So they say, this is because of what you did, this is what happened. And that kind of recognition people crave. And if you want to build followership as a leader, you're going to get a lot of it if you do that. So Adam, you just mentioned when you were talking about feedback that we have to approach it from this coaching perspective. And I'm glad you brought this up because I wanted to also discuss this notion of making that leap to leader in the context of career growth and opportunities. Because there's a common saying that it's not what you know, it's who you know. And understandably, this is a big pain point for a lot of people because access to the people you need to know can sometimes feel out of reach. And I especially like what you write here about mentoring, because I've had people contact me out of the blue asking if I could mentor them when I don't know anything about them. And I really appreciate what you write here where what we need to do is start off by building relationships with people. And if we're going to ask for their advice or help, we have to be ready to act on it and share with them what transpired afterwards. So could you share how do we move beyond these transactional approaches that we often associate with networking to building relationships so we can really build 
this network of people who we know we can count on because we've built that rapport, that familiarity that makes them want to be able to help us. And we're going to take the advice that they give us to heart and apply it. And so how do we make sure we're doing that where we're taking these new relationships and we're able to nurture and sustain them over time? Yeah. And I'd love to go back to the context you said at the, the top and let's talk for just a couple of seconds on how not to do it. Right. And, and I always joke that, you know, five of the scariest words in the English language are, will you be my mentor? Right. Because <laughs> when somebody asks you that it's your eyes wide and you tend to sort of step back a little bit, because as you said, like, I don't know what you want or what you expect. I don't really know you. Right. So a lot of people sort of jump right in and say, will you be my mentor? And it's just not the right way to do it. Um, the other way to not do it. And I'm sure you have uh, experienced this. I've been on the receiving end of people reaching out and say, Hey, you know, would love to buy you a cup of coffee. And, and you, you sit down with them. Cause I, I always try to say yes, if people put in the time to, you know, put together a really authentic pitch. And, um, and often when I do say yes, you sit down and they're not really prepared for the conversation. It just feels like a social call, right? Yep. Um, yep. And suddenly I feel like, why am I carrying the conversation, right? You reached out to me. Um, so I, those are two like on the don't. So what do you do? Um, and I think if you take a much more sort of organic approach, approach to building that relationship, almost try to adopt the mentor without ever saying the words like mentor and just start small. If there's somebody within your organization, outside your organization, that you would like to be part of your network for a specific reason, I think the first thing to do is like be crystal clear on what you want from this person because of their expertise, because of their background. There's an overlap with some challenge you're facing so that when you do reach out to them, you can write a, a really complete email and, and say, because of your background X and because of your expertise Y, I'd really love to talk to you. I am dealing with this. I have this very specific question for you. Could I get 15 minutes of your time? And I think if you are really thoughtful, throw in some truly authentic flattery in there, not fake flattery, but that shows that you've done some research on the person and their background, I think most people are going to say yes to that. And then when they do say yes, you sit down, say, thank you, dealing with challenge, would love to get your take. And they give it to you and you say, thank you. And you go away and then you write them back and say, you know what? I really appreciate your advice. I acted on what you said and it was great. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? Say thank you or a meal or something and just build slowly from there. But at every step of the way, you have to be crystal clear on what you are hoping to get from that person so that you're not wasting their time. Right. And ideally, to be clear, it should be a two way street, too. It's not just what they can do for you, but maybe you can help them in some way. I mean, ask them questions. Maybe there's some problem. Maybe there's some connection. Maybe there's some reverse mentoring that you can do. But you just want to slowly build that like a, an authentic relationship um, and don't don't put other agendas on it. Don't do it for political reasons. Don't try to snow somebody. You know, if you're looking for feedback, you have to make it safe for them to give you honest feedback. And even if there's criticism in there, it's like, yeah, I saw that presentation. I was in the audience. I could have done a better job. And here's how. Thank you for that insight. So to me, those are just a couple of tips on, on how to build that network of mentors. So Adam, staying in this vein of communication and relaying what you 
hope to get from others to help you evolve and grow and eventually maybe land in that leadership role you're after, there's another challenge you discuss in your book that many people face, and that is being heard by those above them. I mean, we only have to look at the ongoing debate over RTO mandates to see how many leaders are being tone deaf to what their employees are trying to tell them. And for those who are eager for the right reasons to want to make the leap to leader, this could be a real challenge because how can you get accepted into a leadership role if you don't feel seen or heard? And here you have some great points for what we need to do, many of which force us to challenge our assumptions of how things work or should work. So Adam, how can we make sure we're seen and heard so that we'd be considered for that leadership role that we want to take on. Yeah. And to me, the first step is to make sure that you do such a great job uh, with the responsibilities you've been given. I mean, the, your your work should speak for itself. And, and I put the word should in sort of italics, if you will, because it doesn't. I mean, we need to acknowledge that. And and even though we'd like to think that, boy, you know, doing such a great job, people should notice it. It doesn't always do that. I mean, there is that great expression in, in life that there are workhorses and show ponies, right? And a lot of the times the show ponies are always talking about all the great work they're doing and not necessarily doing it. And sometimes you can be a workhorse and think, you know, if I just do my job, do it really well, get recognized, it doesn't always happen. So given that context, what do you do? And the first thing I you I just keep coming back to this, you have to do such an overwhelmingly amazing job in what you've been given, right? These are the responsibilities. Just make sure you crush those. Then the second step is to go above and beyond your job description, right? And, and I know the context for this over the last few years, quiet quitting, boundaries, great resignation and all that. I, I know there's a lot, there's something in the air out there. It's like, yeah, but people shouldn't necessarily have to do that. Um, and that's why the subtitle of the book is how ambition, how ambitious managers make the job to leadership. Because if you're not ambitious for those promotions, that's fine. No judgment. But if you are ambitious, you the second step is you have to go above and beyond what you've been given as an assignment. And that means taking stuff off your boss's plate. It means seeing some opportunity or challenge that the company is facing that isn't part of your job description, figuring out how to transform the role you have so that the person who does it after you does it better. And if you do that, like you need to start with that base, then I think it becomes much easier to advocate for yourself, um, to go to your bosses. And, and if there's just like this real clarity about all the value you've added and all the things you've done, you can do that in a very quiet and confident and calm way and let the facts speak for themselves. And sometimes I tell people just run through the exercise. Let's say you didn't want to negotiate for yourself for a raise or promotion, but what if you just, again, what if you hired an agent to do that on your behalf? The, the first conversation was the agent would say to you is, well, give me some material. Like, how do I make the case for why you deserve this? What have you done for the company beyond just fulfilling your job description? Because that's not good enough. Um, and so I, I think that's the way to go at it. And it needs to be, you know, the, the advocating speak for yourself has to be the last step on top of doing a great job with what you've been assigned, going above and beyond, and then going to your bosses and making the case for something more. I feel like a lot of people listening right now are probably thinking that 
this is putting a lot on my shoulders, that I have to do all this stuff just to get to a point where those in senior leadership positions will take notice and say, hey, here's someone who I think we should develop for a future leadership position. But as I was reading this, I felt this evokes this idea that it's almost like you're practicing for the role of being a leader. Because let's face it, there's little doubt right now that being a leader today is much harder than it was 10 years ago, let alone five years ago. And as you just mentioned, this is reflected in the fact that among the large people who were counted among the great resignation were, in fact, several leaders, including those in senior executive positions who felt the work was just getting to be too demanding. So as you were describing this, and as I read the book, it was interesting because it's almost like, yes, you're trying to let people see the value bring to organization, but it's also making that transition a little bit easier because now you're getting ready for the demands and the expectations and you know, going above and beyond that you're going to be expected to have to deliver now as a leader. And I think this also dovetails into a really interesting concept you share in your book for that, how those who make the move to leadership can avoid getting overwhelmed. And it's by compartmentalizing the work you need to do. So I'd love it, Adam, if you could elaborate on how do we do this so we can keep our eyes on the puck. And I had to throw in a little Canadian reference in there for both of us, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And and to that point, I mean, look, these top jobs, they just are overwhelming, right? You get up these C-suite roles and, and close to them. Um, the problems are huge. These are stamina jobs. You know, in some ways they're three shift jobs. Like there's the morning email crush and then meetings all day long. And then after dinner, you're probably putting in about three or four more hours just in reading and sending, you know, more emails and things like that. Um, and the problems are just every day, like there's a new problem, there's a new challenge and people are dealing with stuff at home. There's the people problems. There's the, you know, just the infinite list of problems and it can all feel a bit overwhelming. That's why you have to be really clear about whether you want these jobs. But once you are in them, I think we need to be honest about the fact that part of the challenge is just getting in the right mindset of being able to deal with these jobs. Um, because depending on your wiring as a person and just how you handled all these challenges, it's very easy to be sort of spending your nights staring at the ceiling for two hours, um, worrying about something or trying to figure something out rather than sleeping and getting some rest. And I've, it's, I've often been struck by leaders and I've interviewed more than a thousand of them by now that there is this sweet spot you have to have. On the one hand, you have to have like incredible antenna and radar and just, and you have to be a really good listener and pick up all these signals from people and the organization and all those things. And so you have to be super empathetic and, and again, have those good antenna, but you also have to have like a lot of conviction right and 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 in some ways like if you want a visual you threw in puck i'll throw in lobster as a metaphor like <laughs> lobster have some super long antenna right like they can feel the subtlest change in the currents in the water but they also have a really hard shell and you kind of need that to be a leader you need to do both and if you don't have that if you're not able to compartmentalize everything's going to feel pretty overwhelming so i think the first point is to recognize like that you need to be good at that. Like that is to me, a core skill of being an effective leader to be able to just keep things in its place and say, okay, I'm going to deal with that tomorrow and not feel overwhelmed. 
and part of compartmentalization too is is knowing how to talk to yourself right because to move up into these top leadership jobs you've probably got a really great track record of performance you probably hold yourself to a really high standard and the further you you move up the more mistakes you're going to make right because you're making decisions with less and less data you're making a lot more gut calls you're making a lot more bets that could not turn out and it's very easy to sort of get in this talk track with yourself where you're beating yourself up. And so you have to approach the job a little bit like a hitter in baseball, where if you've got a 350 hitting average, like you're doing amazing. Um, and just to be sort of cognizant of that dynamic. And I often think about something one of our mentors in our firm said when he's coaching um, new CEOs or founders of companies, uh, and he hears them sort of being really hard on themselves. And what he tells them is, he said, look, if you talk to your friends the way you talk to yourself, you wouldn't have any friends. Mm. Yeah, I like that line. And and I, to me, it's just a great reminder. It's like, you can't be a perfectionist. You've got to be easy on yourself and know how to sort of coach yourself through all these challenges. So Adam, we're all bearing witness right now to an evolution in today's workplaces where Slowly but surely, we're moving past a concerted focus on when and where people work to how we as leaders can empower, support, and develop employees to deliver their best and grow no matter where or when they work. So with this evolution in mind, and given the interviews you've had with thousands of CEOs and senior leaders, what do you see as being the evolution and the way we approach leadership that's needed to meet this change and how we will work in the years ahead? Yeah, it's just been such a, a sea change. I mean, I sometimes when I'm talking to especially younger audiences, I, I would say like, you don't have the perspective of, you know, several decades like I do, but it is, we are living through a time of breathtaking change, right? Yeah. Like, just think about a time in, in where leadership is getting turned upside down, inside out, the nature of work, digital acceleration. I mean, what a breathtaking time to be alive, right? And I think it has huge implications for, for leadership and how people lead. Um, and a few things come to mind. One is the traditional practice of building sort of strategy documents that somehow suggest you know how the next three or five years are going to break. Um, I just think it's unrealistic anymore, it, it, anymore, right? Like this idea of, you know, I can see the future. I mean, that's what a lot of investment theses are based on. It's like, I have a crystal ball. I know exactly how the future is going to play out. And, and, and here's my business plan against that. And I've got profit estimates going out for the next five years. Like nobody's buying that anymore. Right. And so I, I think we're in much more of an environment where we need to talk about strategy in terms of bets instead of strategy. Cause I think bets is a much better word that captures the spirit of what companies are actually doing now which is that they have a thesis, right? And they put resources against it. And it's usually an informed bet, an educated bet, and there's some analysis behind it, but that is a bet. For some reason, the word strategy sort of carry, carries this certainty with it. And I think as a leader, you need to set the tone for the organization where you just say, look, we don't know how the future is gonna play out, but let's place these bets, let's do it with courage and conviction, and if something doesn't work out, we will change quickly. 
and learn from it. So to me, that's an important insight. I think another big um, aspect of leadership is just the integration of purpose and mission and values and strategy um, and the cultural norms, all these different aspects of running a company. I, I often felt in the past that those felt like separate conversations, right? You know, leadership would have an offset. Okay, we need to come up with a purpose statement. Okay, good, we're done. And then maybe six months later, it's like, well, we need a list of cultural values. Okay, that's good, we're done. And then the strategy document is separate. And I think everything needs to fit together much more sort of snap tight, like Lego pieces, like everything needs to feel like an organic whole that the purpose, the values, the mission, the strategy, even the leader's own personal values all feel like they're integrated and part of a complete whole so that they make sense. Um, and that's why I think, uh, you know, a lot of the work we do with leaders now is being clear about their own personal values and being willing to talk about those more and more, because that's what we expect from our leaders now, right? We're always hearing these words about authenticity and humanity and, and what does that mean? And I think there is a hunger for people to know from their leaders, okay, what do you stand for? I don't want to hear the corporate talking points. But what do you stand for as a leader and what's important to you? So those are the few things that just come to top of mind about the way leadership to me is changing and will continue to change. Adam, as I'm sure I told you the last time we spoke, I was a big fan of your corner office column in the New York Times, and I continue to be a fan of your writings on leadership with this latest book of yours. And it's such a pleasure to speak with you again and benefit from the insights you've gleaned, both from your conversations with all these leaders but also from your own leadership experiences. So thanks again, Adam. And I look forward to our next opportunity to continue this conversation. Thanks so much. Always, always enjoy our conversations. If you'd like to learn more about Adam's latest book and find a link to listen to our previous conversation in episode 91 of my podcast, check out the show notes for this episode on our podcast page at tavinasir.com slash LBC. And if you'd like to learn more about my speaking work, Check out my speaking page on my website at tavernaseer.com where you can learn more about the subjects I cover in my keynotes and corporate workshops, as well as to hear from other leaders about their experiences hearing me speak about the challenges leaders face today. I'm Tavernaseer, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.